Now we uh, are pressing on in church history. We're getting toward, not getting toward the end of church history, obviously. We're getting toward the end of uh, how far we're going. Um, I, I may actually add a little section. I, I keep reading on stuff, and so I was like, oh, you know, that would be, oh, no, no, but you can only do that so many times. Um, but we began last week looking at the uh, Anabaptists, and um, right at the end of the, uh, the class, actually after the end of the uh, time allotted for the class, uh, a, uh, a question came up in regards to... Um, um, well, how many of you, uh, this is going to be a small minority, but uh, how many of you have seen um, the less than five minute video uh, that we posted uh, last year where uh, we shot it in this tiny little room uh, in the Vartberg Castle? Uh, and I am talking about um, the Anabaptist martyr that had died uh, there at the. Uh, at the castle, I, I assume you've seen it. How many of you have seen? A couple of you have seen it. Okay. Um, I would, uh, uh, you know, it's it's four minutes long, four and a half minutes long, something like that. So it's not exactly an in-depth discussion, but um, it is um, a rather fascinating uh, place. To have had the discussion uh, as you're looking down this uh, into this dungeon, which is at least 30 feet, uh, maybe as much as 50 feet down um, into the blackness. They've put lights down there so you can see just how far it really is. Um, but uh, the reason we shot the video was so that I could address and discuss the, uh, the tension. Uh, well, let me just remind everybody or, or tell you if you're visiting. Last uh, September, uh, a group of folks went over to Germany and we did a Reformation tour and we visited a lot of the primary sites in Luther's life. And uh, one of the places we, uh, we went to was, uh, you know, I... I got to preach in the Castle Church in Wittenberg, which was a, sort of a bucket list type of thing to be able to do, um, and from the high pulpit. And um, uh, and then we went to the Wartburg Castle, which, of course, is where Luther hides uh, after uh, the encounter he has with uh, Charles uh, at the Diet of Worms, and he's a wanted man, and he's hidden away by Frederick. We, we've covered all this, and... Um, so it is where the New Testament is translated into German, uh, one of the most important uh, things that Luther does, uh, and very important for the German language, too. Almost any time the Bible gets translated into a language, it's a rather major um, milestone in the development of that language. And uh, so, you know, you, you go through the castle and you visit the the places and uh, see the various rooms and you see the room where he did the translation work and, and uh, you know, it's just, you can go to the gift shop and get lots of Martin Luther trinkets and, uh, and, and stuff like that and uh, uh, books and you take lots of pictures and stuff like that. Well, I uh, asked to go up early and we uh, 
I went along with one other person and visited this particular uh, location. And um, let me uh, just double check here. If you, if you, I realize I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, give you all a uh, URL from up here. That's sort of silly, unless it happened to be really easy, which I don't think that it would be. Um, uh, that's my name, and uh, that's oops. I have big fingers. I'm not sure how any of us ever learned how to. Yeah, if you just put in uh, my name and Vartberg, <coughs> it's easier remembering Fritz Erbe, uh, E R B E. But if you want to, I suppose I could just write that here, and then you could do it that way too. Fritz. Herba. Uh, put that in. Uh, it's the first thing that comes up. Fritz Herba, the Reformation figure you've never heard of. And it's a whopping four minutes, five seconds long. Hey, you know what? We've got the, we have the power. What you're looking at is where Fritz Herba was imprisoned until the end of his life in 1540. All right, so let me just do it this way. I know you can't see it in the back. I'm sorry, but uh, you'll be able to hear it anyway. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. What you're looking at is where Fritz. Uh, see, see what you did. See what you did. Oh. <laughs> what you're looking at is not touching where Fritz Erba was imprisoned until the end of his life in 1548. What had happened is he had been arrested initially uh, in the early 1530s. And what was he arrested for? Well, he was arrested for not baptizing his children, and he refused to allow that to happen. Now, I want you to remember the time frame here. Uh, when is the Bible being translated? Only 100 meters away from us right here. 1521. And 1520, 1521. And so, uh, barely a decade later, you have a man being arrested for believing what he reads in the book that is translated here. Then, he, and as he's at the other place of his imprisonment, he's preaching. This causes people to begin supporting him, and so he is brought up here, and he is put in this hole. And those of you that are here looking down, that is a very, very long way down there. I can't imagine how cold it was, how lonely it was. Certainly efforts were made to try to convince him to change his views, but he would not do so. And so here you have a man who finally loses his life, passes away. The cold, the deprivation that would have been his, and yet, you must understand, he is imprisoned by Protestant forces. This is sacralism. This is the state church. The very, the very man who was fleeing from perse political persecution, hiding here, translating the Bible into German. Here is a man who reads that Bible, 
believes what he reads and ends up down there. How do you put those two things together? Those two realities must be recognized historically or we end up with a cartoon view of the Reformation and a cartoonish view of the relationship of church and state and the, the warts, or the Vorper castle, but a different meaning, the warts that we see on the Reformation, that we see on the work of the Reformation. It wasn't something that was just immediately perfect and wonderful. There were all sorts of difficulties along the way. I don't know about you, but I look down there, and if they were lowering me down there and saying, this is where you're going to be until you recant, how strongly do we believe what we believe? Especially on an issue like baptism that so many people have so many different views on today. It is astounding to me, and it is convicting to me to think about how deeply people believed what they believed. Here is a man who believed the word of God, or he would have cried to be released from this place. We know almost nothing about him. They think they found his skeleton buried outside the walls of this castle in 2006. Well, let's hope that, that they did. And can you imagine the reconciling power of Christ's work that someday, we believe, Fritz Erba will be in the presence not only of his Savior, but of many of the people who persecuted him. Talk about the healing of the body. Uh, that's what we see here. And it is, it is a place that people walk by to go see the nice sights, hardly ever thinking about what something like this really tells us about the Reformation and what took place. Okay, so, um, yeah, that was uh, quite a uh, uh, experience to be there. You can, seeing it doesn't change much because though the camera does shoot down, you get some sense, it, uh, pictures, uh, 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 video doesn't really give you a, a good grasp of just, they called the opening the terror hole. Uh, because as you'd be lowered into it, it'd just, it'd just be blackness beneath you. You don't, you don't know what's, what's down there. Um, uh, it was just the internal part of that entire tower all the way down into the earth. And it was just, uh, an amazing thing. It was there seven years. I don't know how anybody can survive seven years down there, but he, um, he did. And, uh, so after that, that evening, I, I was, I think it was that evening back. Uh, at the hotel, we had a get together where we, you know, talk about things and stuff like that. And, and obviously the question came up, it came up on the bus. It came up afterwards. Um, how can Christians, uh, do that kind of thing to anyone, let alone fellow Christians? And, uh, there was one, a woman in the group that was just like, I just, I cannot, I, no, I, that's just not possible. Uh, I'm like, well, realize if that's what you're saying, that there, there, there have been very, very few Christians on earth since, since Jesus' day. Um, and the Anabaptists were not perfect. Uh, Fritz Erba would not have had a perfect theology by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, then again, how could you expect him to, uh, given uh, how he was treated and uh, how long you would expect uh, a person to to even live 
as an Anabaptist. But uh, eventually she did come up to me and say later, she said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to figure it out. You've, you've helped me to understand that it's, it's just not something I'd ever been exposed to before. And that, that was one of the things that bothered me when I, when I started off the trip by telling people, look, I realized that um, uh, the first meeting we had in, in Berlin uh, before we did our first visit uh, to a site, I'm like, I, I realize that uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, Oerx Wingley, these are not men who would have extended to me the right hand of fellowship, uh, at least in the context in which they lived. They, most of them never had, uh, other than Zwingli, never had contact with a overly intelligent, well-prepared uh, uh, representative of a Baptist perspective. Um, and from their perspective, we were just all radicals who were trying to destroy the, the very culture itself. But uh, I, I said, I realized that we would not be ac- accepted by these folks. And it shocked many people. Uh, even the people that were doing the tour, uh, they had had many other tours with leading church historians, people who, if I mentioned their names, you'd be going, oh, yeah, I listen to that guy all the time who never raised these issues. It was always just all the positive things reformers did. They never, uh, I was the first person for this tour group, and they've brought, they've taken thousands of people to the Wartburg Castle. I was the first person to even say, let's go there. And in fact, they actually changed the whole, whole arrangement after people saw the Luther part. Uh, we went up the tower and, and did this in Fritz Erba's cell, or at least above Fritz Erba's cell. Um, and so it is a major issue that I would say if you have not struggled with putting together um, your fascination with and appreciation of the major figures who were sacralists with the real, realization of the Fritz Urbas and the Conrad Grables, well, Grable died naturally, but um, um, Felix Mons and, and My- Michael Sattler. That's why I suggested months ago uh, watching Martin Luther Heretic, raw Martin Luther, then watch the Heretic, uh, uh, um, the Radicals. And you go, because there's Wingley in the cell with Sattler, and there's Wingley uh, overseeing the, the punishment of, uh, of Grable and Mons and Brutley and uh, Blaurock. I forgot George Blaurock up there. Sorry about that. Sorry, George. Um, and uh, because it gives you that tension that you have, to, you have to try to work through to, again, see the reality of sacralism. Uh, the, the state church. Uh, someone might want to close that door, given that there's still a furnace outside. Um, so um, these are issues we have to think through, and one of the reasons I'm going to spend time down here with these guys, Jan Mathis, Bernard Rothman, they are leaders in Munster. And what happens in Munster, we can learn a great deal from, as to excesses, as to imbalances, as to heresies, as to how cults get started. And that all takes place in the middle 1530s. And after that point in time, nobody in the sacral church will touch the Anabaptist to the 10-foot pole because of what happens in Munster. 
uh, all of Europe hears about Munster and that the Anabaptists murder and plunder and engage in polygamy and elect kings and are just obviously insane um, when they're left to themselves. And they have to be put down at high cost and invasion forces and, and uh, the, the Protestants and the Catholics have to work together to uh, purge the land of these radicals who uh, are utterly destructive to all culture, society. They burned all the books except the Bible. They destroyed all the artwork. Uh, Munster was decimated. This is what the Anabaptists are all about. And uh, like I said, as we're going to see, and I mentioned to you already, uh, they will torture and kill three of the leaders, put their bodies in cages and hang them from the highest steeple in Munster. And the cages are there today. Bodies are gone, <laughs> but the cages are there today, still hanging there. And there's a reason for it. This is a reminder. This is what these people are all about. And that's from 1536 till today. Figure out the time frame. Uh, half a millennium later, and there's still in the collective and now a thoroughly secular society around Munster. Still, I think we need to keep those up there. Uh, you can actually, I'll show you pictures when we do so, but you can actually go on Google Earth and uh, find St. Lambert's Church in uh, Munster, Germany. Zoom in on it, go to the street level, uh, run around a little bit, look up, there they are. Uh, you, can, you can see it even, even to today. So it's not like they were given a fair shake because not all Anabaptists were even close to the Munsterites. Um, but they were all connected in the minds of the Reformers and the vast majority of people living in Europe at that time. So just some things to keep in mind. Um, from the Reformers' perspective, even before Munster, the Anabaptists represented anarchy. They represented the utter destruction of society, complete anarchy, and hence death, mayhem, and destruction. And if you love life, if you want to do good for your neighbor, then you've got to get rid of these folks. Uh, the idea of a pluralistic society or like that just <coughs> hadn't crossed almost anybody's mind at that point in time. So that's what, uh, that's what we're up against. Um, so how did we get there? Well, uh, as we mentioned before, in Zurich, uh, you have, oh, did you, did you already find them? Yeah, did you just Google three cages Munster? Google Maps. Oh, you did use Google. Oh, use Google Maps. Okay. Yeah, they're still they're still hanging there. Um, obviously, very well made cages because they are the same cages from 1536. They were damaged uh, when the cathedral was hit by a, a bomb during World War II, uh, but they repaired the church, repaired the, <laughs> the cages, and put them back up. So um, that's a that's a testimony in and of itself. Um, for many people. They look back at Zurich and Zwingli and say, there's the beginning of the problem. Because Zwingli, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned to you when we talked about the Rottengeister last week, 
Zwingli, uh, well, maybe I didn't mention to you, uh, at, at one point, Zwingli starts to come to the conclusion that if you can't read the original languages, then you should not uh, be listened to in matters of dispute. This was to give him an advantage over his former students who were now turning against him. Um, many people would say, see, this is what happens when you limit yourself to the Bible without some form of tradition. Um, the, there is no stopping place. Um, all of society begins to break down. And in the minds, even as Wingley, um, he saw the need to continue infant baptism, to continue the support of the princes, and simply to maintain political order. Um, people farther toward Muslim lands that were fighting the Turks uh, who were invading Europe uh, recognized they needed tax money, they needed soldiers, they needed a united Europe to stand against a united Islamic threat. And the Anabaptists were a threat to that unity. Uh, if you watched the radicals, you saw how in the trial of Sattler, as long as they stayed on theological issues, Sattler did fine. And he was starting to convince the people. So what did they do? They got on to the issue of the Muslims, the Turks. And that's what turned the people against him. Um, so those films do a very good job in representing what was going on and bringing up the important, uh, the important points. But for many people... Zwingli opened the box when he began having this little humanist association. Remember, humanist back then did not mean what humanist means now. Uh, odd fontest to the source. And so he would get together with these students and he taught them Greek. Uh, and they would discuss the New Testament in its original language. And um, uh, these were to be his disciples, his, the follow-up generation, whatever it might be. Except what happened there in the early 1520s um, is they start asking questions that lead to divisions. According to at least some people, there, there, there seems to be really credible, credible evidence that at some point early on in that time period, uh, Zwingli admitted to this group that there truly was not a New Testament basis for the baptism of infants. Um, and so if the whole idea had been that we get rid of what has not been established by God, in fact, in the... Uh, dispute in Zurich eventually between uh, Grable, Mons, Reublin, Brutley uh, against Zwingli, uh, they took their stand on the text of Matthew 15, 13, all that has not been planted by God should be uprooted. And so for something to be planted by God, it must be planted on the basis of Scripture. If it's mere tradition or politics, then it needs to be uprooted. So that was the thinking. That was the mindset. 
And it is around uh, this time then that uh, Zwingli, for the first time, at least uh, from uh, his perspective, from the Swiss perspective, uh, begins to enunciate for the first time what will eventually become the Reformed perspective on pedobaptism based upon a covenant theology. But he did not have that in the early 1520s. He has to develop it as an argument against his former students who are challenging him on this very issue. Now, what the connection between Zwingli's development of this and Calvin's imbibing of that at a later point is, I'm uncertain. Um, there's a, remember, there's at least a four-year gap uh, between Zwingli's death and Calvin's publishing of the Institutes um, and so uh, Calvin is converted right around uh, that time period. And so exactly what the connection is, is is difficult to say. But the point is that uh, Zwingli opened the door. And he also gave the tools to especially, especially Grable and Mons, um to develop at least semi-sophisticated, it's not like they had years and years and years of development, but semi-sophisticated arguments that were challenging to uh, Zwingli to respond to. Um, there is also, there are also a number of other issues that, that came up, and again, where we're, you're not certain of exactly the relationship between the Groups that existed before the Reformation, Waldensians, Albigensians, whatever, and Grable and Mons and Roiblin and, and Brutley and so on and so forth. Their lives are so short um, that, you know, when you're on the run, hiding in the woods, you can't exactly go to the local university and, and check out the library and be reading obscure works. Uh, of preceding generations, and so it, there, there's a lot of a lot of confusion as to exactly uh, how who was influenced by what and things like that. Also, remember, it's really easy for us. We're sitting here talking about okay, we're talking about Zurich right now. We're talking about Zwingli. We're talking about the early 1520s. We've sort of forgotten the timeline from Luther. What's the big, huge time mark in the Luther timeline? 1524, 1525. Anyone? The Peasants' Revolt. The Peasants' War. Remember, uh, this is absolutely central in the development of Luther's theology, becoming, uh, moving away from any thought he ever had of a free church. Um, he loses southern Germany, um, uh, back to Rome primarily, uh, the uh, peasants had been looking to him uh, to champion them because he, he had been saying positive things about the need for justice and so on and so forth. They assumed that meant that he'd stand with them, but once they became violent, he stood against them because he saw them as fundamentally leading to anarchy. Uh, 100,000 people dead 
in a short period of time, just mowed down uh, by superior forces. And that revolt likewise influences what is going on in Zurich, not to the same extent, but uh, you have refugees, you have a lot of people rethinking things, and everyone recognizes that the Anabaptist movement received great impetus as a result of the Peasants' War. And so you sort of see an explosion of people taking leadership positions over the next few years after the Peasants' War. Uh, many people gave up on the possibility of reforming government. And so the Anabaptist anti-government mindset uh, had a close connection to what had happened in the slaughter of those 100,000 people. And so, for example, when we get down, uh, you know, Michael Sattler, uh, Schleitheim Confession, uh, 1527, I think. So this is very shortly after. This is, this is right after the events of the Peasants' War. That's still very, very fresh on everybody's uh, minds. Um, and then in 1530, so you know, two and a half years, three years after Sattler, a man by the name of Melchior Hoffman is converted, and he begins preaching a very, very eschatologically oriented form of Anabaptist theology. And you can see why he'd be able to do so. Uh, when you have bodies piled up to 100,000 in very, very recent memory, people's memories were better back then than ours are now. We sort of forget what happened five years ago. Um, but they didn't uh, back then because not much changed from year to year. We're just, we just expect everything to change from year to year to year. Now, um, this had just happened in their experience, and so uh, it's real easy in light of plagues and wars and slaughters. Not difficult to use the book of Revelation to come up with. I mean, you know, we think, uh, we think some of our modern eschatological fun stuff is, is wild. Uh, it's nothing compared to some of the stuff you had back then. And so it was really easy. Uh, you know, Hal Lindsey was an amateur in comparison to what people uh, uh, did back then. And so it was easy to convince people, we're living in the last days, uh, look at all these people that died, that's one of these plagues, and then look at what this guy looks like, he looks like this horned beast. And I, I mean, it, it's, it's fairly uh, simple to understand how this worked. Within a brief period of time, you get all these people coming to the fore, and they have a strong emphasis upon the end times. The end times are now. And the, the, the woman who's riding the beast is Rome, uh, and Luther and the rest of the reformers uh, have, you know, look at them. They're, they're still doing all the things that uh, that, that Rome did, they're just, uh, they're, they're just 
offspring uh, of the Pope uh, prattling about doing their, their, their little things. So it was very, very easy uh, to tap into the anti-Catholicism, but then just throw the Reformers in with that and say, well, look at all the things that, you know, they, they still wear clerical garb and, and uh, this, that, and the other thing, and, and throw them all, all together. And so Melchior Hoffman uh, comes along, and uh, he's able... Now, now, these guys didn't... These, these early people, many of, you know, you know, Grable dies of natural causes, but Mance is the, the first one killed there in, uh, in, in Zurich. Uh, Roiblin, as you may recall, that's the real sad story. Remember, Wilhelm Roiblin was a key character in the Radicals film. He ends up going back to Roman Catholicism and living, uh, living off the money of the people who killed Michael Sattler. I mean, it's, uh, it's a sad, sad footnote to that particular story to, to, to realize that. But uh, uh, starting in 1525... Being an Anabaptist gives you about two years, maybe three, uh, before you end up at the bottom of a river, lake, prison, run through, head chopped off, whatever it might be. And uh, the places where you could find any level of safety get fewer and fewer and fewer very, very quickly. Uh, this leads to the eschatological fervor. And so Melchior Hoffman comes along, up to this point, there had been some disagreements. Remember in the radicals, you know, if you accept the power of the state, the power of the sword, you need to have a pure movement. There's dif differences between Wilhelm Reublin and Michael Sattler about that very thing, but then Wilhelm eventually gives in, but then he changes his mind later. Um, there was a lot of, of, of controversy even amongst them as to how much can we accept of the state's protection? Can we make friends with, you know, what if we have, what if a, a prince is converted to our perspective? Can we go to his land and accept his uh, protection of us and, and so on and so forth? But it was primarily, because you're a small minority and look what happened in the Peasants' War, a primarily a pacifistic movement. And Melchior Hoffman is a pacifist. He does not believe in the use of violence or the sword uh, to promote his perspective. But he decides that the new Jerusalem, the, the place where Christ is going to return and set up his kingdom, is Strasbourg. And so he starts teaching this and he begins uh, gathering disciples in Strasbourg. Now remember, Strasbourg is where Martin Bootser is. Eventually, uh, Bootser is going to be convinced to move against the Anabaptists, just as he eventually writes a book against the Jews. Uh, sacred, you know, it's hard to be a moderate sacralist. You're either a full-blown sacralist or you're not. And what's going to happen when you try the middle way is the radicals are going to come along and the middle of the road just doesn't become an option anymore. And But there was an openness initially, and many of these people lived very godly lives, and their opponents recognized it, and the people recognized it. I mean, if you're going to trust your wife or daughter to somebody, they'd be the people that you would do it. You'd trust them. So uh, Hoffman 
begins preaching and begins gathering people to Strasbourg because this is going to become the center of God's kingdom uh, on earth in a very short period of time. In the early 1530s, people start setting dates. Didn't even need Harold Camping. Um, didn't need the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, or whoever it was that did the uh, 84 Reasons Why Christ Returning in 1984. Remember that one? Uh, I, remember, I remember coming out of church uh, one day uh, over at North Phoenix, and uh, somebody had hit the uh, parking lot, and that's a big parking lot to hit. Uh, somebody had hit the parking lot, and everybody had this little blue, I think it's blue and white, I think I may have saved it, uh, booklet stuck under your windshield wipers. Uh, 84 reasons why Christ returning in 1984. So uh, you love those really specific books uh, because you can always take pictures of them and go, well, that didn't turn out real well. Um, but uh, th- this, there's nothing new about this. People have been setting dates for nearly 2,000 years. Um, but they started setting dates for the early, uh, early 1530s there in Strasbourg, and thousands of people start showing up. Now, as a part of his preaching, uh, he converts uh, two men that will become important starting next week. Uh, Jan Mathis and Bernard Rothman. Now, remember, one of the reasons that the Reformation begins when it does and is successful is due to the printing press. Well, Bernard Rothman has his own printing press. Um, He is especially dangerous because he has some money, he has a printing press, he knows how to use it, and he happens to be an excellent writer. Um, Excellent in the sense of being able to write pamphlets that move people. You know, some people can write pamphlets that snooze people. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the government filled with people could write pamphlets that will put you to sleep immediately. Um, but uh, he could write pamphlets that could get people to do things. And from the early 1530s through to when uh, uh, Munster Falls, 1535, that first you know, four or five year period, uh, his writings are some of the most influential writings in Northern Europe and literally lead to the deaths of thousands. Deaths of thousands. Mainly people who believe what he had to say. Uh, that was not his intention, obviously, but that is what ends up happening. And Rothman is located in Munster, um, and that's where his press is, and even once that city is besieged, as we'll find out next week, um, the siege wasn't all that good at first, in the sense of it was sort of porous, and they were able to get tens of thousands of his pamphlets out, and he was able to you know, send stuff out and call for Anabaptists to come to Munster and to help them, and many of these people perished in the way because uh, the, the local bishop, the Catholics primarily, but the Protestants joined in eventually, um, realized how dangerous this was. And so if you had weapons and you were heading toward Munster, 
there's a good possibility you'd just be stopped, run through with a sword, and left to die on the, left to bleed out on the side of the road. And that happened to many people, men, women, and children. Anyway, so Bernard Rothman is converted under Melchior Hoffman, who is a pacifist, but then something's going to change. And history tells us that you can have people who start off as pacifists, but once they begin to experience opposition, it's very easy to transition into the mindset that this opposition is persecution and therefore make the decision that you're going to stand for God and fight for the truth. And how far that goes or how radical that goes, well, there has been no place where it's gotten any more radical than it would in Munster. Uh, there are modern examples of this. Jim Jones and Waco are both really good examples of somebody who started off in a fairly, you know, had a fairly orthodox background. But once they get power over people, uh, and once opposition starts coming, then the radical swing takes place. And uh, a number of people have drawn a lot of parallels between Munster uh, and Waco. And um, there are a lot of parallels. Parallels, there really are. How it ended up coming out, and the leaders, and yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of parallels. But then we've got this guy, Jan Mathis. Now. I listened to one presentation on this that basically said that Jan Mathis looked like he walked right off of a Led Zeppelin album, album cover. Just long hair, beard, black robe, uh, six foot four, five, something like that. Big, tall, dark, Gandalfian, except in black robes. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm trying to come up with illustrations that might visually give you some idea. Uh, this guy, um, this guy could not walk past you on the street without you going. Did you see that? Did you see yeah, that, that that type of thing? You know, um, he, yeah, all of that, um, and. Jan Mathis uh, will be the linchpin, the conversion from uh, the pacifist Melchior Hoffman theology will be mutated by Jan Mathis into the reality of him taking about a dozen men with him at the direct command of God and riding out of Munster, 12, 13 men, uh, to take on the 8,000-man bishop's army with the promise of God that he would be victorious. It would also lead to his um, death, dismembership, dismembering, hanging his head on, the, on a pole outside the city, and the nailing of his private parts to the city gates. But he all did it because God told him to do it. And God talked to Jan a lot. I mean, it literally, it was, it, 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 it almost was Jan Mathis gets challenged by someone. Just a second. Yes, Lord? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, right. All right. So here's what the Lord says. 
I mean, that's basically what you're going to end up with. Not immediately, but step by step by step until basically you've got this wild looking dude uh, saying, being believed by all the Anabaptists who have come to Munster that he is a prophet of God and that he speaks for God directly. Directly. How did that happen? Well, that's one of the things we'll be talking about as we press forward and get closer to our conclusion. All right? Let's close the word of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for the opportunity of thinking back. We ask that you would give us insight to learn and to be warned and to be made more wise uh, even in our day. Be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.